the Jogcast, sailing to you with crew members Claire Brotherton, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, Hannah Stacey, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, June 2015 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Charlie. Joining me today in the studio are Indy and Hannah. Hello. Hiya. In the show this time, Indy will interview Dr. Deborah Sajaki about cosmological simulations, and Ian Morrison and Claire Breverton take a look at what's happening in the June night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Indy with this month's news. This month in the news, the origin of high-energy jets and a baby Kuiper belt. Active galactic nuclei are some of the brightest objects in the universe, emitting large amounts of radiation across the electromagnetic spectrum. As such, they are an extremely interesting category of objects for astronomers to observe, especially in the radio band, where a number of AGN and their host galaxies exhibit phenomena known as jets and lobes. The emission from these radio galaxies is due to a process called synchrotron radiation, whereby free electrons are accelerated to relativistic speeds by magnetic fields and emit light at radio wavelengths. The result is usually quite spectacular showing astronomers a pair of very large lobes of extremely hot gas, uh, even plasma in this case, coming away from the nucleus of the galaxy in symmetrical fashion. These are suspected to be generated by very compact and energetic jets, also made up of plasma which are somehow beamed out of the galactic nucleus and which link the nucleus and the lobes. These are sometimes visible in active radio galaxies. Despite their brightness, Comparatively little is known so far about these radio-loud AGN and their interesting jets and lobes. They are predominantly found in elliptical galaxies, although there is no single explanation for this. Many complementary theories have been put forward, such as more massive black holes being found in ellipticals, or a richer intergalactic medium. Another mystery was why some AGN possessed visible jets and lobes, and others did not. This appears to have been solved recently by a team of astronomers using the Hubble Telescope's Wide Field Camera 3 to study a population of known radio galaxies. As they were investigating the images, they realised that all the galaxies they were looking at were the product of mergers, that is to say, the, the collision of two galaxies to form one. When this happens, the black holes at the centre of the two parent galaxies end up rotating around each other at extremely high energies to finally merge. This huge burst of power appears to be what powers the extremely energetic jets. The work was done by Marco Chiaberge and colleagues at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. They studied a sample of 19 of these radio galaxies and found that all of them had irregular shapes and regions of intense star formation, which are both telltale signs of a recent merger. Some mergers don't produce jets, but this could be due to the fact that the black holes involved in the process are still falling towards each other and haven't actually merged together yet properly. In the case that they do come together, the final, larger black hole would be spinning faster and have a stronger magnetic field than the previous two, thus ejecting charged particles to its surrounding disk of gas at extremely high speeds and powering the spectacular outflows that radio astronomers see. While the precise mechanism of the jets and lobes is still not known, This discovery lends credence to the theory that the black holes are behind it all. In other news, astronomers have discovered debris around a nearby star that looks a lot like the Kuiper Belt. 
The Kuiper Belt is the region of our solar system beginning just after Neptune, extending to up to 50 AU, or astronomical units, away from the Sun. It is home to a host of small asteroids and bodies made up of ices, so this is water ice but also methane ice and ammonia ice, and three dwarf planets. Most famous of them is Pluto, but we also have Haumea and Makemake. Astronomers suspect that most of the material in the Kuiper Belt is left over from the formation of the icy planets in our solar system. A team of scientists using the Gemini Planet Imager, an instrument on the Gemini South Telescope in Chile, have discovered a ring of material extremely similar to the Kuiper Belt around a nearby star that's just 15 million years old, which is its a mere baby in astronomical terms. The star is only about 360 light-years from our solar system, and the ring of debris surrounding it is located about the same distance that the Kuiper Belt is from our own sun. It also receives roughly the same amount of light as the Kuiper Belt does from our sun. This discovery is an extremely important find, as it could enable astronomers to study a system very similar to our own solar system, still in its infancy. They have also found that the centre of the ring is offset from the star, which could suggest the presence of an unseen exoplanet as large as Jupiter. Observations of the system will continue, and another instrument similar to the GPI, called Sphere, is also looking for such systems. With more discoveries bound to come, the history of our solar system will slowly begin to reveal its secrets. Finally, construction of the 30-metre telescope, or TMT, on the Hawaiian mountain Mauna Kea is going to go ahead as planned, but the rules and regulations governing astronomical facilities located on the mountain are going to undergo significant change. Mauna Kea is seen as a sacred space by the Hawaiian people, and the many telescopes that have been built on the mountain since the 1960s are seen by some as violations of an important cultural site. Protests broke out in April and halted the construction after it began, despite the project having gone through a long permissions process to be able to go forward. The land TMT and other telescopes are built on is leased by the University of Hawaii from the Hawaiian government as a science reserve. The TMT construction is set to resume, but on the condition that 25% of the other telescopes located on the reserve would cease operations and shut down by the time TMT is ready. It remains unclear how these telescopes will proceed, and a number of legal challenges are being fought in the Hawaiian courts. This issue highlights the ethical and cultural issues that astronomers can face when looking for appropriate telescope sites, and whatever transpires will be of great interest to the broader astronomical community. Cheers, Indy. Now, Indy is going to interview Dr. Deborah Sajaki about cosmological simulations. Today I'm with Dr. Deborah Shiazki from the University of Cambridge. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Thanks for being with us. Um, you've come to Manchester to give a talk about basically cosmological simulations. Now, this is quite interesting to have as a subject for a Jodcast interview because I'm sure that not many of our listeners, not many members of the public, are familiar with that area of physics, of astrophysics, despite the fact that it's actually a really crucial area because a lot of interesting work is done. So my first question to you is going to be, could you maybe give us an overview of what simulation work actually involves doing and, and what it's used for in, in astrophysics? Yeah, sure. So we are usually doing cosmological uh, simulations in general, or cosmological simulations where the equations that we are trying to solve are too complicated, and that usually means that the equations become nonlinear. So it's not very easy to solve them on pen and paper, or sometimes it's impossible. So while you can get some estimates, you can really not come to the correct answers. So the idea then is to take some of the equations and put them into the codes, numerical codes, and then let the codes solve these equations numerically and then get the answers out. 
So in particular, in terms of cosmological simulations, what we are trying to simulate is a large-scale distribution of matter. And at the first approximation, it's gravity. Is that what matters? So we are trying to actually calculate the gravitational interaction between different components in the universe. So essentially, what you've got is a... I guess just a big box of, of stuff and then you just apply the equations so general relativity basically equations or the equations of gravity so when you talk about the equations these are so, so you mentioned gravity essentially where you're transposing the the theoretical equations into into the simulation where you're describing them using sort of a, an approximation in computer code to figure out how the how the whole system is going to work yeah, that's roughly what we are doing. So we are essentially what you have, you can imagine you have some large scale distribution of matter in the universe, and then you can start to, under gravity, this matter, if it's a little bit concentrated in some places, it might collapse. So you can, from this pen and paper approach, you can roughly estimate which patches might collapse and on which time scales. But you cannot really follow the collapse of matter as it happens further on, and this is where it gets really interesting because this is where we think that the galaxies form from this collapse. So that's what we do in simulation then. By discretizing these equations in codes, we can actually follow this collapse much further on and we can start to understand how and where the first galaxies form. Okay, so you're, you're setting everything up and you're plugging some initial conditions into the equations, then you're sort of pressing play and seeing what happens with, with very more, large computers, basically. Yeah, more, more or less. That's the, it sounds a bit more relaxed than it actually <laughs> is. But yeah, that's the idea behind it. Okay, so well, that, that raises a couple of questions. First of all, sort of what, when you say large scales, what, what kind of scales are involved and how do you pick those scales, I suppose? And the other question would be, um, how do you pick these initial conditions? How do you say, well, we want the universe to start this way so that it can show us what our universe is? Mm. So do, you can pick a large range of scales. So you can pick a scales that are as large as, uh, let's say, a given galaxy, for example, our own Milky Way galaxy. Or you can pick a much larger scales where many, many, many galaxies form. So that's these are the scales that we say that we are simulating a representative samples of the universe. So they are so large then we average over all peculiar objects that might be forming in a single particular patch. And as for the initial conditions, this is actually given by the observations. So the, they are very accurate observation of cosmic microwave background, and these observations are telling us the cosmology of our universe to very high precision. And we essentially take directly the input uh, from these observations and plug it in our simulations as initial conditions. Okay. To be honest, it, in theory, it all sounds it, it does all sound quite quite smooth and simple. You just have a bunch of equations, and you plug in some initial conditions, mm. hit go, and then you have voila, a universe basically. So mm. my question is, what are the problems that face simulations, and, and what's the gap between what we have today in the simulations and what we are observing, basically? Yes. So yeah, it sounds very easy, but it's actually tremendously complicated. And the reason for this is that our universe is very complex and diverse. And there is so many different phenomena that are happening on so many different scales. So essentially, you would have to worry about very small scales, the scales where planets and stars form, but you also have to worry about very large scales where the large-scale distribution of matter has to be captured correctly. So you have a huge, essentially, numerical challenge to resolve as much of the spatial scales as possible, but you also have a challenge to implement as correct physics as possible in the simulations. And that is really very hard. That is a frontier of state-of-the-art computing nowadays is trying to put in as realistic physics as we think it's possible because the processes like star formation, 
or black hole growth or feedback from the supermassive black holes that we think are present in many galaxies today are extremely complex phenomena. So not easy to simulate. I can imagine, yeah. And I think this, some of our listeners will enjoy this, but what kind of computing power, how much computing power does, does one of these simulations need? I mean, obviously you need sort of supercomputers, but how, how intense does it get? <laughs> yes. So it's, yeah, supercomputers are essentially indispensable. That's what we use on a daily basis. And the, the smallest simulations, which we would just call test runs and numerical experiments, which we would even not publish, usually they would run on a, 32 or 64 CPUs put together. But for the big, really, simulations, for the very big ones, for example, for these illustrious simulations, we have had to employ more than 8,000 CPUs at the same time to be able to simulate. So you mentioned this illustrious simulation. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about the simulations you're involved in and how accurate they are in in the sense that what kind of physics they actually simulate? Because as you mentioned, you can't simulate everything because it's just too difficult but mm. so what mm. physics do you actually simulate in your mm. in your simulations yeah so what uh, well one of the big motivations behind the illustrious simulation was to try to get the variety of galaxy morphologies to simulate them as they are in the observed universe so the the galaxies in our local universe there is a huge variety of them so there are some galaxies that have very large extended star forming disks there are some galaxies that have some central concentrations of stars There are very massive galaxies that stop forming stars. They have all different morphologies. They look different. They have different properties. And it has been really a huge challenge to try to reproduce this variety of galaxy properties. And we have a lot of observational data, which is a guidance. So that has been really a goal of the last simulation is try to get some of this variety in the simulated properties of the galaxies. And thanks to the number of actually processes that we have tried to incorporate in these simulations, like the outflows from uh, supernovae or also the outflows from supermassive black holes, we have managed to get some of this variety present in the simulations. So how many galaxies are we talking about? What kind of size of the universe are you looking at to get a distribution of galaxies uh, sort of thing? Yes, so you have to look at the fairly large size of the universe. So it's of order of uh, 100 megaparsecs on a side. And you ideally want to simulate as many galaxies as possible because you want to compare them with the wealth of observational data. And uh, we are talking here about thousands and thousands of galaxies, essentially. And so w- what kind of time scale within the simulation like, does it run along? How much of the age of the universe are you, are you looking at here? Yes, so we are actually trying to simulate the whole, essentially the whole observation a lot. So we are starting from very early cosmic epochs when the very first galaxies start to form. And some of these are observable, for example, with Hubble Space Telescope. And we go all the way to the present day, essentially. So we we simulate majority of the cosmic time. Okay. And and how long does that take in in real world time to do? Yeah. (laughs) Several months. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So you've literally got a simulation that just runs for for Yes, so the the, the bad thing is that you have to start it and restart it and restart it again. So you have to kind of babysit your simulation and make sure it it runs properly. And and that takes a lot of effort to do. And it takes, yeah, many months. But once you have it, it's a great asset to start to compare with observations and try to understand which physics is relevant. 
for the galaxies as we see them today. Sure, but that that must generate a huge amount of data as well. Surely, like when you once you once you've done running, you've just got a huge pile of data that you have to sift yes. through to get the relevant stuff out. Or... That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so the 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 effort doesn't end. Yes, we are dealing with uh, essentially of order of hundreds of terabytes of data. So this, even though we are trying to write this data in some clever ways, so in some smaller chunks that are mm -hmm. more manageable, we still, you have to post-process the simulations in many different ways to extract exactly the information you are interested in, and it does take uh, quite a bit of time. Yeah, it seems like a massive effort. What would you say the scope for improving or expanding simulations is? Is it more in terms of improving the way we model things, or is it just simply... As computing power just increases, 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 then we'll just be able to do more things with the code we currently have, or is it maybe a bit of both? Well, definitely increasing computational power is just going to help. You know, it plays to our advantage, but we definitely need to improve the modeling of physics quite a bit. So we cannot just sit back and relax and wait until the, the computers get better and then just re-simulate something and, and get a better answer. We will get the answer faster, but it won't be better. So what we have to work very hard on, and this is really a aim of all modern cosmological simulations, is to improve on the modeling of the physics that we put in simulations. That's the, the most difficult bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I was kind of amused one of your slides because it was all the different physical effects that impacted simulations. And then the last bullet point was sort of magnetic fields, dot, 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 question mark. And that's famously like a very yes, sort of yes. niggly thing um, yeah, um, yeah. in astrophysics. My PhD is um, is studying sort of much smaller scale that some of the magnetic fields of the Milky Way and so it's very funny because in, a, in any other field in physics magnetic fields people just kind of run away like scared so yeah, <laughs> yeah but, um, is there any kind of attempt at trying to to model the impact of these of, of for example magnetic fields or is that like kind of the last thing to implement in terms of simulations like mm -hmm. what's what's sort of the thing that people are focusing on at the moment or is it kind of a multi-pronged approach where all different groups are trying to to model different things and to incorporate these into mm. one big simulation mm. kind of thing well it has to necessarily be a, a multi-pronged approach because the problem is that different physical phenomena are actually tightly or processes are tightly linked and influence each other so coming back to your magnetic fields question <laughs> of course magnetic fields are very important on a variety of scales so possibly regulating the efficiency of star formation can provide significant pressure support in galaxies and in galaxy clusters can affect how the feedback operates in many systems they are very hard to model but people have already started including that in cosmological simulations and getting some very first promising results and the challenge is now how to couple that more self-consistently with small-scale physics and see how it all works together. So um, I think as a final question, do you think do you think one day, maybe 10, 20, 30, 50 years in the future, we might have a simulation that could reasonably give us something that looks very much like observational data? Or is that a bit of a utopia? <laughs> well, I'm working in this field, so <laughs> I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> or before I retire at least. <laughs> Yeah, so, all right, that's, the, that's the, the goal of the simulation. Brilliant. Thanks a lot for answering our questions today, Deborah. And, um, Thank you. Hope to see you on, sometime on the Jodcast soon. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Thanks today, Andy. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all the cool science that we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So my odds and end, uh, I was attracted to by its unusual name. Um, there is this object called NAST1, and it's been nicknamed uh, Nasty1. And it's um, a wolf rayet star, which is a kind of star that is a massive, rapidly evolving star. 
Um, so these kind of stars have a, a mass of at least 10 solar masses. And what they do is lose their um, hydrogen envelope very quickly, exposing their um, core in which hydrogen and helium are being fused into heavier elements. Typically, these stars have these lobes of outflowing material from this hydrogen envelope, but this particular star, Nasty One, <laughs> appears to have a, a disk of opaque gas, which is being stripped by a companion star, um, and it's being stripped not so efficiently, so it's sort of spilling out um, and creating this big pancake-like disk, which is huge. It's two trillion miles wide, this disk, and it's not been seen before. And what we think is that it's probably um, a brief stage in astronomical terms, so um, maybe a few thousand years, and possibly the formation of this wolf rate system. So maybe wolf rate stars are formed in binary interactions, and now the majority of stars are in binary systems, something like 70% of them are binary stars, and the direct mass loss can't really account for the number of wolf rate stars that we see out there, so we think maybe that wolf rate stars are formed through binary interactions like this one, and we're seeing part of its formation stage. Cool. So this, this nasty star, it's a giant gas pancake. Did you mention how big that was? Uh, two trillion miles. So that's that, huge. Yeah, so that's something like a sixth of the distance to our nearest star, Proxima Centauri. So it's pretty huge. Wow. Yeah, it's about half a light year, I think, or a little bit less, which is, yeah, massive for any single object. That's a lot of gas. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and for my own end, I've been looking at the uh, light sail mission. So this is a mission that's been organised by the Planetary Society, whose CEO is the one and only Bill Nye. And this society is non-profit. It sponsors projects which support the future of space technology, exploration, education. And this current project, the Light Sail mission, is to demonstrate the proof of concept for solar sails. So these are where you have a giant, very thin sail, which reflects photons of light and transfers momentum to the sail, generating the thrust to move a spacecraft. So the first phase of this mission is to test the deployment of these sails. So they have these small little satellites called CubeSats, which are very small. They have volumes of about one litre. And cool things about these is because they're so small, they're very cheap. And this means that pioneering citizen spacecraft projects could become a reality. So universities, companies, and even some schools can and have designed CubeSats to do different experiments. And these can hitch lifts off bigger rockets and do their thing for a lot cheaper than people could do so before. And the main thing that we need to work out is how to move these about in space, because obviously fuel is expensive. So these solar sails are one idea. And the first phase of this mission is to test deployment for these solar sails. So they've sent one of these CubeSats up in a space plane, and they've ejected it. And unfortunately, there's been a bit of a problem. The CubeSats suffered a little bit of a blue screen of death due to a software glitch which has been fixed, but not on the satellite that's actually in space at the moment. And so they've tried to reboot it, and they haven't been able to. And they are waiting for the chance occurrence of a reboot caused by a charged particle in the atmosphere now. So apparently, with lots of spacecraft, the electronics can be interfered by charged particles firing through the satellites. And if they do it in just the right way, it may cause a reboot, <laughs> and that is what they're waiting for. And apparently it will happen before the satellite falls out of the sky, so that would be good. <laughs> and when that happens, they'll test the deployment of this massive solar sail. 
Excellent. Um, so, so how how big do you need your sail to be for uh, for a little cube satellite like that? So yeah, the cube itself is really tiny. The sail is very thin. It's about four point five microns thick, but it's huge. It's thirty two square meters. So you can imagine for bigger satellites, you need a lot bigger. Well, that's just for a loaf of bread size. That's yeah. Thing. So yeah, this, that's a good thing. This is about the size of a loaf of bread. So if you've seen Disney's Treasure Planet, they have massive pirate ships that are powered by solar cells in that. So you can imagine that if you need thirty two square meters for a loaf of bread, then these pirate ships in the future would need even well. Yeah, you're gonna Ridiculous. have these yeah. massive sales, more sales. They've, sale than they've taken else. a bit of artistic license there. I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but the technologies are really exciting. Even NASA have been using these CubeSats, and they're going to use them to relay data for their next Mars mission. Excellent. Yeah, speaking of Mars, uh, that's what Miles and ends about. So orbiting spacecraft around Mars, uh, including NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, have imaged these dark, thin, finger-like features on the surface of Mars, uh, which have been dubbed recurring slope linear. Uh, which is a very catchy name, or RSL, which is what I'm going to refer to them as. And so there's these sort of flows that appear seasonally on the surface of Mars, and they've been observed sort of on slopes of various features in the terrain, mountains or hill-type things, and they appear on the slopes in the, in the warmer months and then fade away when it gets cooler. And scientists actually think that these might be flows of salt water. So, liquid water. Yeah, well, supposedly it's flowing down the, uh, the slope, so yeah, that would actually oh, be yeah, liquid well, water. Liquid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And latest images that have been taken reveal that some that there might be some of these active flow regions very close to the Curiosity rover that's sort of trundling around on the surface at the moment. So on one hand, these things are really interesting, really exciting. It would be amazing to find any kind of liquid water on Mars. On the other hand, it's raised a lot of questions about the so-called planetary protection of Mars and whether we should even be interfering or, or going to you know poke and prod these things to look for, for whatever, water or, or even signs of life. So I'm just going to go into a bit more detail about these RSLs. Um, so the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that belongs to NASA has done sort of high-resolution imaging of some areas of the surface, including Aeolus Mons, which is a central mound in what's known as the Gale Crater. And it shows these active slope processes, these RSLs, within tens of kilometers of the Curiosity rover. So Curiosity doesn't go very quick, but tens of kilometers is definitely within its range. And they observe dozens of these transient narrow linear, so you know, small little fingers of possibly water so they're, they're quite cautious about saying that it actually is liquid water they're just saying potentially could be because they're not entirely sure what they are however though over the course of, of a couple of years on mars these features have faded and they haven't returned so they're not sure if it's still worth investigating so the theory behind these things is that essentially the water would rise up in warmer conditions from an underground aquifer and in, in a different area on mars which has also been imaged by the reconnaissance orbiter in valis marineris one of the researchers has estimated the amount of water that's been sort of thrown out of this aquifer to be anywhere between 8 to 17 Olympic swimming pools of water. And so basically the only way that you can have such an amount of water on the surface coming up periodically is that it's coming from some larger reserve on, underneath the surface. However, astrobiologists have cautioned scientists about exploring these things with curiosity, for example. And here, this is where opinions diverge. One side in favour of this sort of planetary protection where we should leave these areas be and observe them from a distance and not drive the rover straight up to the thing. And, and you know, because there's, there's potential for some sort of contamination from stuff that might be on the rover itself. I mean, even though these things are all built in clean rooms, you, there, there's no, never 100% certainty. So this is coming into the ethics of space travel. 
It is. It is a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not quite the prime directive yet from Star Trek, but we have to think about how we're going to affect the environments that we encounter, and you know, this could be relevant as well for something like uh, Europa as well, where you know yeah. you've got this ice planet, but there's liquid water underneath the surface, and you know what do we do when we eventually land a probe on there? Do we just start drilling straight away, and then what happens if we encounter some sort of life forms? It's a uh, Kind of a delicate question, it's and it's something that hasn't really been approached that much yet. So, we're yeah. planning a mission to Europa as well, by the looks of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so these are these are questions that you know scientists and, and space explorers are going to have to think about. Yeah. So not not just that that we'll be contaminating other worlds, but that we might not be detecting Martian life at all, but just stuff that we brought with us. <laughs> that is a that's a question. They must test the sort of detectors before. Yeah, well, they're, they're built in clean rooms, but yeah. you can't be hundred percent certain, can you? Like you said, hmm. that they didn't bring anything with them. Oh, so even if you find something, it might not be. It might just what be <laughs> something's picked up on the way. Yeah. So yeah, that was the odds and ends. And uh, now for someone who explores the stars from a very safe distance, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky for June. 2015. Sadly, of course, we don't actually have an awful lot of dark sky to observe in, but nevertheless, there are some nice things to see this month. We'll start off with the constellations that we can see. After sunset, setting over in the west is the constellation of Leo the Lion, with its bright star Regulus, and its mane sort of forming what's sometimes called the sickle. And we'll come back to that because that's where Jupiter lies at the present time, and there's going to be a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus at the end of the month. Moving over towards the south, the fairly blank part of sky, but actually it's called the realm of the galaxies because it's towards the Virgo cluster and also in Coma Berenices, and with even a small telescope, quite a number of galaxies can be seen there. There is one bright star in the south, and that's actually Arcturus, which is at the southern end of the constellation of Bootes. Uh, between Bootes and rising over in the east, we have Cygnus, the Swan, and Lyra the Lyre. There's the constellation of Hercules, and I'll mention both of those a bit later on. So we're beginning to see what is called the Summer Triangle, made up of the three stars Altair in Aquila, Deneb in Cygnus, and Vega in Lyra. If, with a pair of binoculars, you sweep up from Altair, about a third of the way towards Vega, there's actually a rather dark part of the Milky Way. It's called the Cygnus Rift. And in there, you actually see a little upside-down coat hanger. It's called the Coat Hanger, or Brocky's Cluster. Also fairly high overhead, we have Ursa Major. And those constellations are all discussed in more detail in the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter is now well past its best, but it still stands out in the southwest at nightfall. Its brightness is falling slightly from magnitude minus 1.9 to minus 1.8, and the angular size drops a little, 35 to 32.5 arc seconds. It starts the month in Cancer, but moves into Leo on the 9th of June in its eastwards progress towards the star Regulus. Our best views of the planet are now past for this apparition, but a small telescope will show you the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, and up to four of the Galilean moons 
as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn, probably the best month, and one of the best months to observe it. It reached opposition, and that's when it's approximately due south at midnight UT, or 1am BST, on May the 22nd. So it's visible in the southeast at nightfall. We're not really set until dawn the following morning. It's moving slowly in retrograde motion in the eastern part of Libra, but in fact quite close to the fan of three stars that makes up the head of Scorpius. It's only three degrees away from the fine double star Beta Scorpii. This is a good time to observe Saturn. The globe may only be 18 arc seconds across, but the ring spans some 41 arc seconds. They make a beautiful sight as they are tilted 24 degrees from the line of sight, which is almost as open as they can be. What is sad, however, is that Saturn is now in the lower part of the ecliptic and only reaches an elevation of 20 degrees above the horizon when it's due south. Sadly, that's going to get even worse over the next few years. In fact, recently I was able to view Saturn through a 16-inch telescope from a latitude of plus 29 in the Sahara Desert. And the view was absolutely stunning. Perhaps you should have a trip to the Southern Hemisphere. Mercury was at inferior conjunction, that is, lying between us and the Sun, on the 30th of May. So it's not visible during the first part of the month. It slowly climbs into the pre-dawn sky and reaches greatest elongation west, so it's rising before the sun, on the 24th of June. It'll then have a magnitude of plus 0.5 and a phase of 35%. It should be visible with binoculars low above the east-northeast horizon as dawn breaks. Aldebaran, which lies in front of the Hyades cluster in Taurus, will then lie about two degrees to its lower right. By the very end of June, Mercury's a little brighter and be six degrees above the horizon, about 45 minutes before sunrise. To be honest, this is not really a good month to observe the moonlight planet. Well, Mars passes behind the sun, that's called superior conjunction, on the 14th of June, so it's not visible this month. Well, finally, Venus. It's been a lovely sight over the last month or so, shining brightly at minus 4.4, increasing slightly to minus 4.6 during the month. It dominates the western sky after sunset. It starts the month in eastern Germany and will reach greatest elongation on June the 6th, when it will lie 45.5 degrees away from the sun. At the start of June, it will be visible about half an hour after sunset, and be about 29 degrees above the western horizon. The angular size is increasing from 22 to 32 arc seconds. At the same time, it's becoming a narrow crescent, with the phase decreasing from 53 to 34%. By the end of June, its elevation above the horizon at sunset will have dropped to 19 degrees, and it'll set at about 11.35 BST. I'll come back to Venus in the highlights of the month. Well, as I've said, June is still a good month to observe Saturn. It's due south and highest in the sky soon after darkness falls. To find it, follow the arc of the plough's handle downwards towards first the orange star Arcturus and continue down to find the white first magnitude star Spica in Virgo. Saturn 
a little brighter than Spica, lies in Libra, down to its lower left, and will appear slightly yellow in colour. Held steady, binoculars, either that or a small telescope, should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. And a small telescope will show you the rings with a magnification of times 25 or more. As Saturn rotates quickly with a day of just over ten and a half hours, its equator bulges slightly, so it appears a little squashed. Like Jupiter, it does show belts, but their colours are very muted in comparison. The thing that makes Saturn stand out is, of course, its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, B can be called the bright ring, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which should be visible in a telescope of four or more inches aperture if the seeing is good. Lying within the B ring is the far less bright and rather difficult to spot C or crepe ring. Due to the or orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system, the orientation of the rings, as seen by us, changes as it orbits the Sun, and twice each orbit they lie edge on to us and so can hardly be seen. This last happened in 2009, and they're now opening out, currently, as I said, at an angle of about 24 degrees to the line of sight. They will continue to open out until May 2017, and then narrow until March 2025, when they will next appear edge on. June's quite a good month to find the globular cluster M13 in Hercules and the double-double in Lyra. And on the night sky page, there's a little chart to show you where they are. Binoculars will pick them out very well. A little fuzzy blob is M13. It's the, actually the best globular cluster we can observe in the northern sky. And again, the double-double in Lyra is called that because with binoculars, you'll see a double star just down to the left of the star Vega, the brightest star in Lyra. But with a telescope, and under conditions of good seeing, each of those two stars is seen to be itself a double star. That's a very nice thing to see with a small telescope. In the latter part of June, it's a very good time to spot what are called noctilucent clouds, also called polar mesopheric clouds. They're seen in the deep twilight towards the north from our northerly latitudes. They are the highest clouds in the atmosphere, at heights of about 80 kilometres or 50 miles. Normally they're too faint to be seen, but they are visible when illuminated by the sunlight from below the northern horizon, when the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. They're not fully understood and are increasing in frequency, brightness and extent. Some think it might be due to climate change. So, on a clear dark night, as light is draining from the northern sky, long after sunset, take a look towards the north and you might just spot them. On the night of the 15th to 16th of June, when fully dark, there's a chance you might see some meteors of what's called the Lyrid meteor shower. It's called the Lyrids because the radiant, which is where they seem to radiate from, is very close to the star Vega in Lyra. The peak rate that night is reckoned to be about 8 meteors per hour, which is not many, but in fact there is a close to new moon, so there's a good chance to spot one. There were many more meteors visible in the late 1960s, 
but the rate has dropped off markedly since then. So if it's clear, it's well worth having a look to see if the shower still really exists. On the nights of June the 12th and 13th, Venus lies close to the Beehive Cluster, M44, in Cancer. And that might be a nice thing to look with a pair of binoculars. On the 28th of June, after sunset, Saturn will be seen close to a waxing gibbous moon. That'll be 88% lit. As the night progresses, they actually come close and are just over a degree apart as they set at around 0230 BST the following morning. And finally, June the 30th after sunset, a close conjunction of Venus and Jupiter, the two brightest planets in the sky. Jupiter is moving slowly towards Regulus in Leo. Venus, start of the month in Germany, moves quickly across Cancer and into Leo. And on the 30th of the month, catches up with Jupiter when they come just 21 arc minutes from each other. Interestingly, both planets will then have the same angular diameter of about 32 arc seconds. But whilst Jupiter sports an almost fully illuminated disk, that of Venus will be a thin crescent, just 34% illuminated. They'll be low above the horizon, but they'll dominate the sky in the west-northwest from about 22.30 BST until they set around an hour later. Let's hope for a clear sky that evening. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia and welcome to the June Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. This month we reach our winter solstice here in the Southern Hemisphere, when the south pole of the Earth is at its greatest tilt away from the sun. This means that the sun appears much lower in the sky, our days are shorter and colder, and our nights are longer. This year the solstice falls on the 22nd of June, New Zealand time. The word solstice means sun stopped or sun still, because at this time of year the sun rises and sets at its most northerly points of the year. As we move back towards the summer, the sun will gradually rise and set further and further south, until it stops again at the summer solstice in December and begins the long journey back north. Whilst the cold weather at this time of year may not be so welcome, the long, dark nights provide a perfect opportunity to observe our beautiful southern skies. Stunning Venus, the brightest object in the sky after the sun and moon, and golden Jupiter appear in the northwestern sky after sunset this month, gradually moving closer together as Venus climbs higher and Jupiter continues to sink towards the horizon. By the end of June they will be within half a degree, less than the diameter of the full moon, and will be a beautiful sight. A lovely crescent moon will join them on the 20th. We're very lucky here in the Southern Hemisphere that we have a perfect view towards the central bulge of our Milky Way galaxy, so it appears broader and brighter across our sky. The centre lies in the constellation of Scorpius the Scorpion, which is now midway up our eastern evening skies. Scorpius is our winter constellation, and together with Sagittarius, a little below, will be dominating our skies over the next few months. At the heart of the Scorpion is the bright, orange-tinged star Antares, a red supergiant with a radius more than 800 times that of the Sun. If it were placed at the centre of our solar system, its surface would lie between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. The name Antares means rival of Mars because of its distinctive colour. This tells us that it is a cooler star, at around 3,500 Kelvin. 
with an apparent magnitude varying between 0.88 and 1.16, Antares is amongst the 20 brightest stars in the nighttime sky. To the left of Antares is an almost vertical line of stars forming the Scorpion's claws, and slightly left again is Saturn, shining at magnitude 0.8. An almost full moon will pass within 1.5 degrees of Saturn on the second of the month, and should be a lovely sight. Here in New Zealand we don't have scorpions, so we see this group of stars as something a little more familiar here in the southern Pacific. To Maori, this group of stars is known as Te Mato a Maui, the fish hook of Maui. Maui used this hook to pull a great fish out of the ocean, which became the North Island of New Zealand, Te Ika a Maui. The red star is known as Rehua, and represents a drop of blood that Maui took from his nose to use as bait. This constellation was an important aid for ancient Pacific navigators, as it travels directly overhead from our latitude. Once Tamato Amaui was right overhead, it was simply a case of travelling east or west to find Aotearoa, New Zealand. Below the tip of the fish hook, the brightest stars in Sagittarius form the shape of an upside-down teapot. With the Milky Way running through this part of the sky, there are a whole host of stunning nebulae and star clusters to observe. About halfway between the scorpion's sting and the spout of the teapot is M7. This is an open cluster of stars easily visible to the naked eye, and a lovely sight through a good pair of binoculars. M7 is thought to be around 980 light-years away, and around 200 million years old, pretty young in astronomical terms. Nearby and somewhat fainter, the butterfly cluster, or M6, is also well worth a look in binoculars. We will continue to look at some of the other sights in this part of the sky over the next couple of months. The morning skies at this time of year are particularly important here in New Zealand, as this is the time we celebrate Matariki, or Maori New Year. The timing of this celebration is based on the heliacal rising of the small group of stars known as Matariki, or the Pleiades. By just before sunrise, Scorpius, or Tomato Amaui, has moved to the west-southwestern horizon, with the hook pointing upwards. On the opposite side of the sky is the arch-enemy of Scorpius, Orion the Hunter, rising directly east, with the three bright stars of his belt lying along the horizon. These stars are also known as Totoru here in New Zealand. If you follow these stars along the horizon to the right, they point to Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in the nighttime sky. Follow them to the left and you first come to a V-shape forming the head of Taurus the Bull, with the bright star Aldebaran marking his eye and then to Matariki, rising in the east-northeast. Matariki is in fact visible throughout most of the year, only disappearing from our evening skies around April before reappearing in the morning in early June. But it is this reappearance, or heliacal rising, that tells us that the old year is coming to an end. The next new moon, or in some cases full moon, marks the beginning of the new year. This year, the new moon falls in the morning of the 17th of June, and may be visible a day or two after this. Matariki, Totoru, Takarua and Rehua form four po or pillars that hold up Ranganui, the sky father, in the sky. Matariki supported one of Rangi's shoulders and marks the rising point of the sun at the winter solstice. Takarua, Sirius, supports the other shoulder and is the closest bright star to the sun's rising point at the summer solstice. These two stars represent the extent of the sun's movement throughout the year. Totoru held Rangi's neck and marks a celestial equator which runs along the length of Ranganui's backbone. Pututarangi, or the star Altair, marks the other end of the celestial equator. These three Po are all in the east, but the fourth one stands alone in the west. Rehua, or Antares, in Scorpius, is the fourth Po, which supports Ranganui's lower torso. 
A line drawn from Matariki to Rehua marks the ecliptic, the pathway of the sun, moon and planets through the sky. These four po form the basis of a celestial compass, a map of the night sky that was used to navigate the Pacific Ocean and bring our ancestors to Aotearoa. The physical appearance of the stars in Matariki were also used by Tohunga, expert sky watchers, as a forecast of the year ahead. If the stars were clear and seemingly far apart, a warm and bountiful year would follow. If the stars seemed hazy and indistinct, the year would be cold and lean. I'd like to finish by saying Namihi o te toho kia koto katoa, wishing you all a very happy new year from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now it's on to the feedback. Um, unfortunately, we have no posts this week. Sad face. Um, on Facebook, uh, not many messages, but thank you for all of your likes. On Twitter, we've had a very nice retweet from Steve Holio, who called the May Extra Dodcast a really good opportunity to learn from those very clever boffins at Jodrell Bank over your lunch hour. So, well, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> I like being called a boffin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I heard that word very much. <laughs> so, so um, and hello to all of our new Twitter followers, and thanks for all of the retweets, favourites, and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. At Twitter, twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. At YouTube, at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post, please send us post, the address is on the website. I guess all that's left now is to thank everyone. So special thanks to Dr. Deborah Sajaki for the interview. The editors were Charlie Walker, Money Kenson, Indy Leclerc and Mark Perver. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. So until next time. Jod on. Jod on.